Aloha. Aloha. Let's just go ahead and get our Hawaiian lesson out of the way right now. We'll repeat after me. Haole. Makahiki. Ho. Happy New Year. Okay. Aloha keakua. That's all glory to God. Please pull out your sermon notes and open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 1 today. While we're turning there, how many of you were up to hear the fireworks last night? Yeah? Okay, I have to confess that I was up last night, but it had nothing to do with watching fireworks. I was busy trying to figure out how I was going to take a three-hour tour and condense it into something that was sermon-sized. And some of you may understand what that three-hour tour references to. Anybody? Gilligan's Island, right. That's where they took the three-hour tour and made it into a 15-year kind of thing. So, uh, It's been a while since I've been blessed with the opportunity to preach God's Word to you. And so I was really glad that Pastor preached a, a short sermon last week because I figured I'd like take a little bit of his time. Um, how many of you did the homework that Pastor gave us last week? Anyone? Raise your hand. Am I the only one? I, I got to get a gold star for that, right? Okay. Does anybody remember what the homework was that he gave us besides Pastor? <laughs> it was reading the book of Hebrews. Okay. The book of Hebrews. Oh, my goodness. You guys don't listen to Pastor either, huh? I love the book of Hebrews. It's all about what, how Jesus is the better way. Better than angels. Better than the law. Better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Actually, Jesus is not just the better way. He's the only way. He's the only way for us to have a right standing with God. Amen? Pastor offered me this assignment to preach two Sundays ago, so if it does come out a little disjointed, know that I was up to about 3 a.m. in the morning trying to fix it. So, But as I was contemplating on what to preach on, what message would God want me to deliver to our church considering the times and considering the day, I kept coming back to these verses in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. I'm going to read 19 through 23 for you. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled, clean from all, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast with the, the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Isn't that what we sang today? Would you read these last two verses aloud with me? And let us consider, not serve one another, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And 25. Very good, sir. Those last two verses are the basis of what today's sermon is built on. Well, 
at least those last two verses, and Jesus, our sure foundation. Why is it a good idea for us not to not neglect meeting together? Well, I mean, it's, lit- it's the literal definition of the church. Remember that Greek word for the church, ekklesia? The word does not mean a building or four walls or that place where people would gather. It means the gathering of those summoned. For the Christian, it means the assembling of those who have been called out of this world and into fellowship together with one another. That's why I say that the clear teaching of the Bible is that you can't be a Christian unless you belong to a local expression of the church. That's the place where Christians learn to love each other and care for each other and encourage one another, exhort each other, and bear one another's burdens. And I know I've said this before, but there's like over 85 each other and one another verses in the New Testament. How do we fulfill these verses if we're not part of a local church? How can we continually stir up one another to love and good works? How many of you are into New Year's resolutions? Okay, there's a couple of you out there. Let me be honest, I gave those up years ago. Or maybe I should put it this way. My last New Year's resolution was to no longer make New Year's resolutions. And you know what? That's the only New Year's resolution I've ever been able to succeed at. Here's the thing. When we talk about New Year's resolutions, at least what we hear from the world, they're usually always about the person that's making the resolution. Am I right? I resolve to work out three times a week this year. I resolve that I'm going to lose 10 pounds. I resolve that I'm going to eat better. I'm going to eat healthier. I'm going to eat less chocolate. Never said my wife. Bless her heart. Here's the thing. Christians are not called to be self-minded. If Jesus was all about self, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. Jesus went to the cross in obedience to the Father. He was not self-minded. He was other-minded. And so that's what the Christians should be showing an example of in this world. We too should be other-minded. Caring for each other, loving each other, bearing one another's burdens. Maybe, just maybe instead of resolving to make our mortal bodies better, which is not a bad thing, fitter, trimmer, leaner, and more beautiful, we should resolve to make the church better. To make the bride of Christ, isn't that what the Apostle Paul calls the church? A more loving, a more caring, a more endearing bride for the groom. And that's what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is all about. Which brings us to Nehemiah. I've entitled today's sermon, The Call to Care for God's Church. And so let me set the stage for Nehemiah with a reminder of where the Jews were and how they got themselves into the mess that they were in. It was approximately 1,000 years before the birth of Christ that Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. But soon after, 
the nation of Israel split into two separate kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And because the northern kingdom seemed to forget Yahweh a little bit faster, maybe it's because Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom, Yahweh allowed the Assyrians to conquer the ten tribes of the northern kingdom in 721 B.C. Now it was in 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar became king of Babylon and first invaded Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And then in 586 B.C. the Babylonians returned and, and conquered Jerusalem, destroying the walls and the temple and the city and hauling off approximately 5,000 Jews into exile in Babylon. Now we can note that the fact that Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jews were taken captive and deported some 800 miles to Babylon was an event that was prophesied because of Israel's disobedience to God. God told them that this would happen. You turn in your Bibles for a moment to Jeremiah chapter 25. Remember, Israel was meant to be God's chosen people. They were meant to live in a land that God gave them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Jerusalem, what does Jerusalem mean? New peace was where God's presence would reside with them. Everybody else had gods that were far off and distant. But here we had God tabernacling with his people. Throughout Old Testament history and the Old Testament history of, of Israel, God warned his people time and again that he would bless their obedience, but that he would curse their disobedience. And yet Israel didn't listen. They failed to remember. They failed to honor Jehovah and keep him first. And so finally we read in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse starting in verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. That's what he did to Jerusalem. Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Israel had forgotten what God had done for them. How he had called them to be his people. And he had called them to be a light for all the nations. They forgot how he had rescued Israel out of Egypt and out of 400 years of slavery. How he parted the Red Sea so that they might escape the army of Pharaoh, leading them through the desert and into the promised land. Israel had forgotten God and his laws. 
They had chosen to follow the false gods and the false idols of these other nations and, and do things that the Lord had forbidden them to do. And so just like a caring father will take away privileges when his son or daughter is disobedient, God took away Israel's privilege of worshiping him in the temple. But God, in his mercy, sent a prophetic message to the Jews who were exiled in Babylon through the pen of the prophet Jeremiah. And that's recorded in Jeremiah 29. He says, starting in verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. Hold on. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. See, friends, God keeps his promises. The Jews were deported to Babylon in 586 B.C. But even as great a nation as Babylon believed themselves to be, Cyrus the Great came along and the Persian army. And he conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. And one of the first things that Cyrus did was actually foretold by the prophet Isaiah some 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Cyrus decrees that the Jews can return to their homeland. He even decreed that, just as Isaiah foretold, that the Jews should rebuild their temple and the city walls. You can check that out like in Isaiah 54 and 55, I think. That would be, that would be like someone prophesying in the United States in 1873 that some man named Biden, Biden would be leading the country and putting forth legislation allowing the murder of babies in the womb. Or legislation mandating that it be taught in schools that there are more than two sexes. Who would believe such a thing? Seventy years after the deportation of the Jews, in 516 B.C., just as Jeremiah had prophesied, just as God had said, the rebuilding of the temple of the Lord was finished under the leadership of Ezra and the first who came back from Babylon. The Jews could once more worship God in his holy place. So now fast forward to 445 B.C., and we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 1. And I'm going to kind of split this up today instead of reading it all together. That's one way I was able to reduce the time. Nehemiah 1 verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, 
Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Who is Nehemiah? Nehemiah tells us that he is the son of Hakaliah, and by doing so, he thus distinguishes himself from two other men in this very book um, whose names are Nehemiah, one in chapter 3 and one in chapter 7. We should note that Nehemiah's name means Yahweh comforts, God comforts. How many of you can attest to the fact that God comforts his people? Raise your hand. There we go. I finally got hands to be raised. <laughs> Proverbs 34 and 18 tells us as much. It says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves, some versions say comforts, the crushed in spirit. Like Nehemiah and so many other Old Testament names, Hakaliah has a key meaning also. Hakaliah means the one whom God enlightens. Isn't that why we gather as a church? to be enlightened about the ways of God through the hearing of the right preaching of his word. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10 and 17, he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Christians understand that the Bible is more than just a history book. It's more than just mere poetry. It's more than a book of do's and don'ts. We know what the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of his heart. I mean, I am often amazed at how I can come to church and hear pastor preach through a section of scripture that I've read and maybe I've even preached it a dozen times or before. And that because the word is living and active and because the thoughts of and intentions of my heart constantly don't line up with God as much as I would love them to, I find that what pastor is preaching, preaching it, it enlightens me. It convicts me of my sin. It brings me to repentance. And it helps me to be sanctified, to be made into the complete person that God has called me to be in Christ. What else do we know about Nehemiah? And why, when King Cyrus gave his edict to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the walls, well, why didn't Jeremiah go? Well, we find that answer actually at the very end of our reading today in verse 11. When Nehemiah writes, he says, Now I was the cupbearer to the king. What did a cupbearer do? Well, history actually lists plenty of kings and rulers who were knocked off by people trying to take over the kingdom by poison. So Nehemiah had the privilege of tasting everything that the king ate and drank before the king partook. If Nehemiah survived, then the king could eat and drink and not have to worry. If Nehemiah died, 
Well, then an ad would have been placed in Indeed.com for a new cupbearer. How many of you would sign up for a job like that? While this was certainly no small position in the court of the king, we have to remember that it was a job reserved for someone considered dispensable. Nehemiah was a Jewish slave, which certainly entitled him to a place on that list of dispensable people, according to the Babylonians. Back to today's scripture reading now. It happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. We note that Nehemiah, Nehemiah graciously provides us with the month and the year of when the story takes place. The phrase, the 20th mirror, means the, the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes Longimanus, Artaxerxes I, the king of Persia at that time. Nehemiah tells us that he was in Susa, the summer capital of Persia, which we know was probably about 800 miles walking distance or if you chose to ride by camel or donkey or horse. We find out in chapter 2 that Nehemiah is fulfilling his duties as cupbearer to the king, so he can't leave. We do have to wonder when you think about it, though, why there were others that did not leave. Was it because they became so comfortable, so complacent, complacent, that they didn't feel the need to listen to God? to do what God had commanded them to do. He sees his brother Hanani and the men who had traveled with Hanani and had just arrived from Jerusalem. Hanani means gracious, merciful, compassionate. All traits that every born-again believer in Jesus Christ should exhibit regularly, right? Finishing verse 2 and 3 of today's reading, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. I don't even know how why Nehemiah would care. I mean, he's got so much to do as cupbearer to the king. He's got his own problems to worry about. We know that as cupbearer to the king, that from the next chapter, that there's a certain decorum that he needed to maintain in front of the king. If the king detected that he was sad or that he was anxious, the king might think that there was a plot in progress and he'd call for Nehemiah's life. But yet, Nehemiah is concerned for much more than his own welfare and that of the king that he's forced to serve. Even though Nehemiah was too young to have even seen Jerusalem, I'm sure he's heard the stories from his parents and, and his grandparents about the city that God ordained. And he's concerned about his fellow Jews who have returned there. Jesus 
I mean, church, please know that a caring Christian has got to be aware of what is going on in the bride of Christ. We need to know about what's going on in our lives. God did not save you to be a lone ranger Christian, to live like a hermit hiding behind the walls of your Bible. God saved you and he called you to be what the Jews call Mishkapa, or what we Hawaiians call Ohana. He saved you and he has called you into a family of believers. We are called out of this world to be brothers and sisters in Christ, to love one another, to care for each other. Nehemiah inquires about how things are going, and he finds out from a report that is very discouraging. It's very dismal. We are told in verse 3 that those who have returned in Jerusalem are in great trouble and disgrace. The ESV translate the word disgrace as shame. Now there's a word that we don't hear much anymore, do we? Because I can remember my mom telling me on more than one occasion, as I grew up, shame on you. Or, have you no shame? And when my mom directed those words to me, it rocked me. It tore me to the core. I learned something about what was right and good versus what was wrong and bad when my mom brought up shame. Children in the secular world, people today, are not taught about shame anymore. The Bible teaches it, shouldn't we? I'm sure that Hananiah's report was not the news that Nehemiah was was hoping to hear because it had been 71 years since the temple had been built. Ezra had left Babylon in 458 B.C., 13 years prior to the time of our reading today, to lead a second effort to rebuild the walls of that city. But instead, Nehemiah hears that the, the city and her walls still lie in ruins, that there are forces that are hampering the rebuilding efforts. Just how important were the walls to a city in those days? Long before most of you were born? 1964 or 67 to be exact. I was all of fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. My family lived outside of Tripoli, Libya. My dad was in the U.S. Air Force, and he was stationed at Wheelis Air Force Base there. And surrounding this huge base was a 12-foot wall, 12-foot high wall. It was three feet across at the top, and it was covered in broken glass that had been concreted into the top of the wall. Nobody was climbing over it. Right? It's a very effective way for separating us from the Libyans. My family lived in a housing complex that was inside of a portion of that wall. We could walk out of our front door and we could look down and we could see a, a softball field. And out on the other side of the right field fence, that chain link fence, was a perimeter road. And right on the other side of the perimeter road was that wall. Saw it for three years. And then 
I mean, we didn't think much about that wall until June of 1967. Anybody know what happened on June 5th of 1967? The Six-Day War. Arab-Israeli War. Right? Israel was attacked, and much to the Arab nation's surprise, Israel did well. But because we were allies to Israel, we became the enemies of Libya. And I can remember being in the sixth grade and watching somebody, whoever was on the other side of the walls, chucking these Molotov cocktails over the wall. And we'd watch them explode in, in right field, and we'd think, oh, that was funny. And then my mom would yell at me, and we'd have to go inside. Two days later, our family was, along with all the other families, were, were uh, evacuated. We were all sent off. Uh, we left our, our dads there to do the work that they were called to do. And we were sent off to different bases in Europe. The walls of Jerusalem provided security. Safety from attack. Without walls, the inhabitants of the city had no way to defend themselves from the surrounding nations seeking to conquer and enslave them. Living in a city without walls told the surrounding nations that you were too weak, you were too poor, you were too disjointed and too disorganized to come together to build one. And what did this say about their God? That he didn't care? That he wasn't very strong God after all? Do you see how this would have been, have been a cause for great shame? Nehemiah hears the bad news, and in verse 4, he gives us an example of the care a Christian should have for the name and reputation of his God, as well as for the care he should have for the family of God. Verse 4 reads, and as, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You know, if you have your Bibles open, we can note in that one verse alone that Nehemiah does four things. And maybe you'd want to circle these four words. He wept. He mourned. He was fasting. He was praying. Nehemiah is just not demonstrating a caring heart. He's demonstrating a a heart that has a burden. A burden for his family, for his, his brothers and sisters, and for God. He demonstrated what Jesus demonstrated for us. How much he cared for us when he suffered and died, when he was bearing our sins on the cross. Isn't this what the Apostle Peter says about our Lord and Savior? That when he writes in 1 Peter 2 and 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Have you ever been made aware of a situation that a brother or sister in Christ found themselves entangled in and you were so devastated that it brought you to tears? I know. And I know that people have 
cried for me when I've been in that situation. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 6 and 10, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Sometimes you know that God is calling you to do, to do something more, but you don't know what it is. Nehemiah weeps for Jerusalem and her people. He mourns and fasts and he intercedes in prayer for them. God has given Nehemiah a burden, but notice this, that Nehemiah doesn't try to shake the burden. He doesn't try to solve the burden, walk away from the burden, or get out his manly duct tape and his hammer and his nails. Instead, we should note what Nehemiah does. What he does is he takes that burden and he gives it back to God in prayer. Verses 5 through 11. Well, 5 through 8. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you. Day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah just doesn't blurt out the problem that he sees. He starts the prayer the same way that Jesus teaches us to pray, by acknowledging who we are to pray to. Note that what we are reading is part of a prayer that, that Nehemiah is offering incessantly. Chapter 2 tells us that he made this prayer, this intercession, for four months before he was led to action. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 17 says, pray without ceasing. That's the call of every Christian. Then Nehemiah confesses his sins he confesses the sins of his people and even his sins and the sins of his family. Because Nehemiah is not coming to God suggesting that his people deserve to be rescued and redeemed. He's asking God to give them what they do not deserve. And that, my friends, is what grace is all about. That's what we live under, the new covenant of grace. No works that we can do that can earn our way to heaven, but God's grace and grace alone. Verse 8, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, through your, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. 
and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. You see, Ohana, a caring Christian, must always be in prayer. And prayer is not presenting to God what we think he should do. We're not praying to some genie. Rather, prayer is asking God to do what he has already promised to do. That's the successful prayer. When we delight ourselves in, 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 in the desires of God, then he will give us those desires, right? Ohana, how many of you have experienced that power of prayer? How many of you can testify that you are in this room today because you were prayed for? That others in this room and maybe elsewhere cared about you and your spiritual and physical well-being so much that they took the time to pray for you to be a, a part of God's family, to replant, repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. James 5 reminds us in the power of prayer. Follows along as I read in verses 13 to 18. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Five times in those four verses, we see the words pray or prayer. You think God is trying to tell us something? Let's note that chapter 2 tells us that Nehemiah he didn't pray for just that minute and then he just went off and acted. He wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed for four months. And the rest of the story is something that maybe you all want to do a little homework this week and check it out. But as we conclude our sermon for today, I want you to think a moment about the cast of Nehemiah 1. Maybe you see yourself as a Nehemiah, someone sent by God to be a comforter. Or maybe you see God, you see the role of Nehemiah as the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the comforter, the advocate. Are you a Hakaliah, the one who God enlightens? The more I press into God, the more I am enlightened to the fact about how much I need Him and I need His grace. Do you see yourself as a Hananiah? a conduit to the grace and mercy and compassion of God. Or maybe you've come here today and God has shown you how much you are like those in Jerusalem in Nehemiah 1. A sinner in great distress and shame and in need of someone to cover that shame. Friend, understand that if you have never been born again. It is your sin that separates you from a right relationship with God. Like all of us, you have broken God's moral, moral laws and that will cause you to be found guilty when God calls you to an account on judgment day. 
My friend, if you die in your sins without a covering, you will be sentenced to face the wrath of God. You will be sentenced to spend an eternity in hell. The righteous punishment that fits that crime. And let me remind you, friend, that eternity is a long, long time. My friend, I'm praying, don't you care? Because God cares. God cared so much that he sent his son to show us what love was all about. Say it out loud with me now, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verses 17 and 18 go on like this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him, whoever trusts in him, is not condemned. Why? Because Jesus' death paid the penalty, paid the fine for all of our sins. Past, present, future. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. My friend, if you've never repented, if you've never turned away from your sin and placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me urge you, let me plead with you to do so today. If you don't know how to do this, come see me. Come see Pastor Come see so many others are here. Because by the grace of God, we care. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?